did you get paid? 70 cents. 70 cents a day? Every two weeks. Every two weeks, he got 70 cents. Introducing Invisible Institutions, a new documentary podcast investigating the unreported and invisibilized horrors of the institutional system. These are real stories. When someone makes a call and says, we have a bed for you, we don't have a home for you, we have a bed for you. Coming February 2022. Hello, hello, listeners. It's Kyla. I'm here to tell you about Code Wax a podcast that shines a light on the callous American healthcare system and what can be done about it. It reveals the healthcare hassles that threaten peace of mind, financial security, and at times, patients' very lives. Hosted by Brenda Gazar, you'll hear interviews with the sharpest minds in healthcare advocacy. Listen to Code Whack wherever you get your podcasts or by going to codewack.libsyn.com. Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. Pullback is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network of Podcasts. My name's Kristen Pugh. I'm here with Kyla Hewson. Hello. And today we are joined by Emily Leadham, the uh, Prairie reporter for Press Progress, as well as the editor of Shift Work, which is the uh, national weekly national labor newsletter for Press Progress. So welcome, Emily. Uh, we're so happy to have you on. How's it going? Hi. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. Doing pretty well. Excellent. We're excited to be doing a special May Day episode with you. I'm hoping you could tell us all about labor and labor organizing in Canada. But before we get into that, I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit more about like what Press Progress is and what you guys try to accomplish. Yeah, Press Progress is an investigative journalism outlet that holds the rich and powerful accountable, exposes unsafe and unfair workplaces, and shines a light on hate and bigotry. And we have reporters across Canada, and we yeah cover a variety of different issues within those general themes. Amazing. And so you're you cover the prairies. Is that you know everything west of Ontario? Where does that count as? <laughs> <laughs> it's Manitoba and Saskatchewan. We do have a separate Alberta reporter. So those two provinces are my domain. And there's usually quite a lot happening in those provinces. I feel like Alberta gets so much attention that Saskatchewan and Manitoba just they're like, oh, they, they're just one thing. And Alberta is its own thing. But it's probably <laughs> not that way. I don't know why I'm so I mean, I feel like I'm checked into Alberta politics because I grew up in Edmonton. But also maybe maybe it's just that Alberta gets a lot of press. Like I see it in the news a lot. Yeah. So I grew up in Calgary before I moved to Winnipeg. So I'm well acquainted with Alberta. It's a very dramatic province. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so moving to uh, Manitoba has been really interesting because it's such a unique and and different culture from Alberta. And then, of course, covering Saskatchewan as well. You You learn just all the nuances between like what's really going on. So in Manitoba, for example, the PC party is relatively new in power, and they have been not very popular. We had a Manitoba Premier Brian Pallister that we actually forced to resign last year and withdraw like five pieces of legislation that everybody hated. So it's been not going too well for them here, which is really interesting because for a long time the NDP was in power in Manitoba. Whereas in Alberta, it was kind of like the opposite, right? Like traditional PC dynasty, you know, you had that like NDP in power for four years and now they're kind of in this like tense, you know. Yeah, whatever's going on. 
is flip the switch a little bit. And then Saskatchewan, you have the Saskatchewan party, which is conservative, and they've been in power for quite a bit. So they've been able to really entrench a more conservative kind of hegemony. And the NDP isn't doing too well there. So it's kind of like really a stronghold of conservative politics, let's just say. And that's become a real kind of darling of the conservative movement lately. You know, a lot of conservative politicians will host their election night parties in in Saskatchewan, like the PPC did. Pierre Polyev uh, announced his leadership for the conservative party in Saskatchewan. So yeah, that's just like a tip of the iceberg of uh, what's going on in Manitoba and Saskatchewan. Yeah. And um, I mean, Manitoba has a really strong labor history, doesn't it? So it must be interesting to to cover progressive issues there. Yeah, it's really interesting. About, uh, well, two years ago, well, in 2019, it was the 100-year anniversary of the 1919 general strike in Winnipeg, which was really cool because it's something I hadn't heard of before um, until I moved to Winnipeg and started learning about not only Winnipeg's labor history, but more of Canada's labor history overall. And we had a really big conference. We invited kind of academics and activists from across the country to talk about you know, not only the the general strike, but the state of like labor in Canada and things like that. So yeah, here's been really where I've learned a lot of information that I know about the labor movement. It was a lot harder to come by in Alberta. We'll just say that. (laughs) Not as labor friendly for sure. I'm wondering if you could tell us some of the biggest stories in Canadian labor this year. What's uh, top of mind for you? Right now, one of the biggest stories is the ongoing fight for proper classification of of Canadian workers. Um, You have employers like Uber, for example, other kind of app-based companies whose entire business model is modeled around misclassifying workers as independent contractors instead of employees. And that excludes workers from basic employment standards like the minimum wage. And it also, you know, prevents them from unionizing as well. And so that's been kind of a major issue. And Uber has been going basically across the world, trying to entrench this standard for workers in legislation, entrenching them as kind of an independent contractor as opposed to, to employee. They've also been working controversially with labor groups uh, around the world as well, kind of cutting deals, saying, hey, we'll, we'll give you some you know, benefits, some improvements, um, but we're still not going to give you full employment status. Um, We'll work with you as kind of a middleman between workers on some issues, um, but these workers are still not going to be fully unionized. They're not going to be able to collectively bargain or anything like that. So it's really interesting what they've been trying to do. Recently, Uber cut a deal with UFCW, which is one of the largest private sector unions in Canada, to work with Uber drivers on certain issues relating to unfair app disqualification. Like if you get a demerit or if something goes wrong, Uber can cut you off from from the app and basically cut you off from employment. And so it was really hard for workers to challenge this and say, hey, this was unfair or whatever, because you're just dealing with an app and an algorithm. Some asshole gives you a three-star review and you're out. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> things like, like that. that. Yeah. So this UFCW Uber deal will allow workers to go to UFCW and kind of appeal those kinds of decisions and maybe try to get reinstated or something like that. But it's been very controversial 
because again, Uber has this agenda of trying to entrench this like, you know, third category of worker almost where you're not a full employee. You might have a bit more, you know, benefits, a uh, bit more improvements, but you'll still be excluded from from basic employment standards. So yeah, that's one of the biggest stories in Canada right now. And it's kind of caused controversy within the labor movement. Yeah, we'll see definitely how that how that plays out. Ugh, Uber is such a disaster. Like, <laughs> like, goddamn. Like, I don't I don't mind paying for Uber, you know, but like like it, it can be a little more expensive. Like you're calling a car on demand. Like just treat them like employees. Although I'm pretty sure that Uber like is still in the negative. Like I don't think they've ever been a profitable company or maybe they just have in the last couple of years. Like I don't know. Yeah. No, I mean that's kind of a whole thing right now is like, yeah, is their business model even viable? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I believe they did post a profit, but it was like a modified profit. So basically they just like made up their own measurements and were like, we're doing well by these measurements. And other people are like, yeah, but by like the standard measurements, you're like not. So <laughs> Uber is so wild to me because like, I feel like if they did treat their drivers like employees, it actually might fix a lot of their own internal issues. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Like, you've never been profitable. Maybe try something new. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Part of this you know, strategy of kind of working with unions and saying, oh, we will offer improved benefits, we will offer improved this and this, is kind of part of a PR strategy by them to kind of rehabilitate their image a little bit. But the long-term goal of it is still, of course, to entrench drivers as independent contractors. So yeah, that's been interesting to watch for sure. Another big story going on right now is in Brampton, Ontario, the Naujuan Support Network is a group of largely immigrant truck truckers, long-haul truckers, and they've been organizing against wage theft in their community. And so they're not organized with a official union or official organization. It's like a true grassroots community group that's come together and they will file petitions, they will you know, protest outside of employers' houses. They'll, they take to the streets protesting, you know, local employers and demanding um, to be paid back, you know, wage theft, essentially. And they've had some huge victories, like they've got thousands of dollars back from employers for, for these workers. And so that's a really, that's been really exciting to to watch. And I think that really came to a head very interestingly, during the Freedom Convoy, yeah, because sure. the Freedom Convoy <laughs> was talking about, you know, oh, truckers are so upset about this vaccine mandate, truckers this, truckers that. And what you didn't hear is that, you know, there's a large percentage of truckers that are, you know, are immigrants that are dealing with all of these different issues that were just not touched or addressed by the Freedom Convoy at all. And this group, the Nagyuan Support Network, has been organizing these truckers and you would not find any kind of like links of solidarity between the Freedom <laughs> Convoy and the Najwan Support Network, right? So it's like, what's what's really going on here? Are you really speaking for, for truckers? Yeah, so that was really interesting to highlight the difference in approach between the Freedom Convoy and the Najwan Support Network. So that is something that was really interesting and is ongoing. They're still organizing, which is great. Another big story has been the academic union militancy kind of across Canada. We saw quite a few uh, academic unions of, you know, professors and instructors 
really organizing against, you know, low wages, conditions that they had to deal with during the pandemic. You know, we know a lot of people will need to re-educate, get new skills. You know, this is how we like preserve the economies is by making sure people have the skills to fill the the jobs that people need. So these um, instructors are like, hey, we need the resources to be able to do this. And we saw Acadia, University of Lethbridge, um, University of Manitoba, Ontario Institute of Technology, St. Anne's University, um, Concordia University, you know, all these kinds of universities going on strike over a number of months. And it kind of was a really interesting wave to watch of these academic unions. And it was interesting to see them talking to each other as well and also organizing students because the first thing that, you know, universities will do in a dispute is kind of try to turn the students against the instructors. And so um, University of Manitoba faculty, they organized really well with the students. And then you saw the University of Lethbridge kind of taking some tactics from them as well. So there are, yeah, there's a lot more Amazon uh, unionization. That's really big, of course. Um, the Teamsters are kind of trying to organize Amazon in Canada right now. And the Teamsters International, so they're an international union, they had an election where there was a big overturn of their leadership, where kind of a more grassroots militant leadership got elected um, in November. And they are basically organizing to strike UPS in 2023, which is the largest private sector contract in the United States. So that's what they're building towards. So watching what happens with the Teamsters will definitely have implications for, you know, what happens here in Canada and, and how that Amazon Union Drive goes. Are the Teamsters, have they, I know there's like the in the independent Amazon union that has been sort of set up in America. But are the Teamsters also involved in some of the unionization efforts there as well? Or is it um, only in Canada where that's the approach? Yeah. So in the United States, you have a number of different unions that are trying to unionize Amazon. And the most successful was the Amazon Labor Union in Staten Island, which is an independent union. It's a brand new union, which is what makes it so interesting and so exciting People are like, where did they come from? What are they doing? They don't, they don't have the traditional infrastructure or funding or, or anything to do this. Like, how did they pull this off? Because the Teamsters International, they do have a, a mandate that they passed at one of their conventions where they're like, this is going to be a goal for our union is we're going to try to unionize uh, Amazon. And um, a number of other unions as well kind of have similar similar goals. But in Canada... Right now, the Teamsters are kind of the main ones who announced, you know, we're going to do a cross-Canada union drive. We're going to try to make this happen. They tried to have a vote at an Alberta warehouse, but it didn't work. And so they were like, we're going to try again. You know, it's a kind of a long-term goal. Recently, Unifor has jumped in and are like, we're going to try to, you know, we're going to try to organize Amazon too. So there's a number of different unions working on this project overall, I guess. And I wonder, um, this might be like a really big question to ask, but if you were to sort of summarize what the state of labor is in Canada, like, are we doing well? <laughs> How's it going? Overall union coverage in Canada has kind of declined a little bit over the past 20 years. It's kind of stayed around 30%. Um, according to the Toronto Star, it was like 32% in 2000. 
and now it's uh, been 30% in 2019. But during the pandemic, there was a slight uptick. So it went from like 30.2% to 30.9%. Um, all right. All right. So, you know, it was like a little bit of a, of a uptick in unionized workplaces. Um, that was a result of uh, six Indigo locations being unionized. There's a Starbucks location, 500 WestJet workers unionized. Um, one of the biggest unionizations that happened in 2021 was actually a warehouse of Canada goose workers. Um, and that was in in Winnipeg or just outside of Winnipeg, I believe. And that was about um, 1,200 workers. So it was the largest private sector unionization victory in in years. So that was pretty big. And that was done by workers united. Yeah, we are seeing a little bit of an uptick. Um, you know, like academics will sort of cite this as, well, and labor activists will cite this as the, the pandemic, obviously, kind of exacerbating a lot of issues that already existed. Um, I think workers' issues have become more to the forefront during the pandemic as well. And workers are just asking a lot more questions. So that has been encouraging to see whether that like continues, remains to be seen. I think with the high profile, you know, unionizations in the States, like Amazon, the Starbucks, you know, union drive wave, I think that's caused a lot of um, excitement. I think that these stories becoming more mainstream has kind of built up more of a, I guess, a class consciousness, you know, in, in workers. But whether that translates to Canada and whether we'll see kind of a similar resurgence of militancy remains to be seen. I know that there's been quite a few union organizers who have been taking a course called Organizing for Power, which is run by Jane McAlevey out of the Rosa Luxemburg Institute. And Jane McAlevey is like a legendary union organizer. She's written several books on union organizing strategies and, and tactics. And a lot of her her writing and work and kind of collaboration with other union activists has really resulted in some really big resurgences in the U.S., like the Chicago Teachers Union is a really big example of that. So we know that there's been a lot of Canadian activists who are kind of engaging that style of union organizing and education. I think that's promising because I do think we need all the help we can get. I will be frank, I don't think labor is where it needs to be right now. I don't think we're as strong as we need to be right now. Speaking as someone who had like never been in a union before and is now working in a union, I cannot recommend it enough. <laughs> I don't understand why every single person isn't unionized. If you're listening to this episode and you're like, unions are dumb and I don't want one, you're, you, you do. You've just been brainwashed like I was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's part of it too. And that's part of why I, I started this newsletter shift work is because this education about the labor movement is really so hard to find and labor reporting is really hard to find that if you're not already kind of entrenched in the labor movement or in those kinds of circles, it's really hard to find information about it or learn about it. Even if you are a unionized worker, that doesn't mean that you know how your union works or that you even talk to your union. Like some unions are really bad at member engagement. You know, they'll only come around once every four years during collective bargaining and there's not really a ongoing effort to to build up militancy and solidarity and 
those kinds of things within the workplace outside of collective bargaining. Yeah, I feel I feel like unions have like a PR problem where <laughs> like all of these companies like Amazon can spend millions and millions of dollars just telling people that unions are the worst and unions are just kind of quietly sitting there doing their jobs. And it's like, that's not enough, you guys. Like- <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yeah, a big part of that, of course, is, yeah, the lack of labor reporting in the media, but also that's kind of part of the state of the media industry right now in general, like just jobs and jobs have been shed from, you know, the Canadian media media landscape that that you have fewer reporters trying to cover more subjects. And so they're not going to be able to get to everything. You're not going to be able to develop like an expertise in a particular area. Like I've been covering labor for, I don't know, maybe four years now, and I'm still learning new things every day. I'm still picking up new things and it can be really hard if, you know, maybe you're just like kind of a general reporter and you're sent to go report on something and you don't have this kind of background knowledge. You don't know like the contacts, um, the experts, the people who will kind of really help explain what's going on. So the working conditions of reporters in the media definitely has a big impact on the kind of information that we all get, including information about the labor movement. So yeah, that's something that I think is an ongoing project that I would like to see reverse. That's part of this like shift work project. But also we are going to be bringing on um, some labor interns this summer, which is really great. And we did have one last summer, which was awesome. So these are kind of interns who will do like a project with us and report specifically um, on labor. And that's uh, hopefully a really great way to build up the labor beat again. I think that would be a really cool thing. I agree. Because I I started a job at Walmart like when I was 18 and there was anti-union training as part of our onboarding process. So like this is something that companies have been getting in. Like, I don't know if they're still doing that. Don't at me, Walmart. But you did when <laughs> I was there. And, and it's just something that like it stuck with me for years that unions were bad. And I never questioned it because it was the first thing I learned in one of my first jobs. And I was like, oh, sure. I believe you, nice lady who took who gave me a job and is paying me, you know, like. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah. So I grew up in in Calgary, Alberta. And yeah, whenever unions were mentioned, it was always like very negatively. And I, I think the only unionized job I worked at was, um, was Superstore when I was like 16. And you definitely, you don't really like kind of take for granted some of the basic things like, oh, at a certain time, you will get at least a 15 minute break. And that doesn't happen at other workplaces, like just simple little things like that. Yeah, you don't necessarily realize it. Yes. I have actually been on strike uh, before. (laughs) Okay. Where where were you on strike? Um, I was in the teaching assistance union at University of Toronto when I just started my PhD. And uh, okay, yeah, so I like had gone from barely knowing that I was in a union to like picketing 20 hours a week in the snow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it was a, an experience. <laughs> yeah. Did you guys get what you wanted? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing is having a union and going through the process of collective bargaining and if you go through that process of even going on strike, that's such a huge educational moment for for workers. That's when they're learning most about how the union works, how the union doesn't work, uh, how the employer functions. It's such an educational experience. And I think that is a big reason why, you know, employers try so hard to 
keep their workplaces non-union. It's not just because it'll like drive up their labor costs or whatever, but it's because it it can instill this kind of class consciousness that can translate into sort of larger have larger political outcomes, you know? Because if you sort of start understanding how the labor movement works, you start understanding how different kinds of legislation or different politicians do things that impact your ability to do your job at work or your ability to get paid well. Yeah, that can really shift the culture, I think. Definitely. And I think it's like, uh, it's an especially interesting process at a university because you also have the dynamic with students, many of whom are sort of you know, young political science students. And that was where I did uh, the program I did my PhD in. So uh, the classes I was a teaching assistant for were classes that were already pretty likely to have conscious students. But you could see like people really organizing around, you know, don't cross the picket line. There were all these debates about when it was okay to go to class or not. (laughs) And then it was a really awkward position for faculty too. Um, because a number of them, you know, it really it really exposed some of the cleavages in terms of ideology within the university. But I think at any workplace um, that, yeah, the process of going on strike or the process of doing a union drive, it changes the culture in such an important way. Yeah. Right now, there's um, a group of activists who are starting a campaign called Picket Lines Mean Do Not Cross. And it is a public education campaign to educate like the public about the importance of picket lines, what they are, why not crossing them is important, which I think is really, really exciting um, to see that kind of public education initiative because, like you said, about 30% of uh, workers are unionized in Canada, but that means 70% are not. And so they might not, you know, they might not understand why it matters to, you know, not cross a picket line or, you know, or be employed as like a scab at, a unionized workplace of of workers who are on strike. Um, I'm curious as well about like beyond like sort of unionization and collective bargaining, what are some of the most important policy issues that are on the agenda for labor in Canada right now? A large portion of labor legislation is, you know, provincial. There's about 10% of workers who are in federally regulated sectors, which means that, you know, federal labor legislation will cover them. So they have a $15 minimum wage, for example, but that only covers about 10% of Canadian workers. So a lot of these kind of policy struggles play out in the provinces, which is quite challenging because a lot of the provinces are run by conservative governments. Kind of an ongoing issue is uh, either one or two-step union certification um, usually when a government, uh, a conservative government comes in power, if it's not already in place, the, one of the first things they'll do, and this is what happened in Manitoba, is they'll implement a two-step union certification process, which basically means that workers will have to sign union cards, you get majority workers to sign union cards, but then they also have to do a vote. And, you know, conservatives and employers will make it sound like, oh, you know, workers need to vote. That's like a democratic process. Um, But they've already voted through signing union cards. So what this process does is it gives the employer more time to kind of interfere and deter workers from unionizing. It just like lengthens that process. And there have been like studies that show that this process does make it harder to unionize and makes it yeah harder to be successful, basically. So that's a policy that unions always are kind of struggling with with local governments about. Um, yeah, no, I was just curious because um, in your explanation of the one versus two step process, um, 
you know, you talked a little bit about um, corporations wanting time to be able to deploy union avoidance tactics. And I know Kyla had briefly mentioned the course she was forced to take, but what are some other kinds of union avoidance tactics that companies will deploy? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, closed door meetings are very popular in Canada and the US. The employer is allowed to like state their case and their position, be like, we think a union would be bad <laughs> for this for this workplace. They're they're allowed to do that. Um, it is interesting in the United States. Um, I was talking to labor researcher Barry Eidlin for an article about this, so I'm relying on like his research. But he points out that in the United States, employers are more specifically protected by free speech laws that actually kind of enable them and encourage them to do more aggressive union busting than they might in Canada. There's not the same kind of free speech protections for employers in Canada. So while they still will employ anti-union anti-union tactics, um, all sorts of shady things like, you know, deceiving workers about the impacts of a of a union saying the union is like a third party that will, you know, ruin our relationship of, of what we have here. They'll, they'll cost you union dues and they have all these talking points about how union dues are, you know, being taken off your paycheck and the greedy unions just want your money and they won't really give you anything in return. In the States, they're allowed to just be much more aggressive with it and kind of lead these huge like scorched earth campaigns, which is what you see with, uh, with Amazon, for example. And that's included, like, for example, the smear campaign against the... Amazon Labor Union organizer, President Christian Smalls, I believe, they particularly were like, we're going to take this guy and we're going to make him like the face of the labor movement and we're going to smear him and, you know, make it so that workers see that and be like, oh, like he's not a good guy. We shouldn't listen to him or whatever. That obviously backfired. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in a pretty big way. <laughs> but there's a bit of a culture difference between the US and Canada. So you might not see that level of aggressive tactics in Canada. Although sometimes you will, like in the in the co-op refinery strike, for example, that happened a couple of years ago in Regina, they employed, these employers will employ um, like agencies that will, you know, they'll spy on workers. They will, you know, intimidate workers, make them feel like unsafe and watched all the time, possibly like spread rumors or, or things that will sow distrust between the union and the union leaders, different things like that. So there's still a lot of shady shit that can go on in, in Canada for sure. I know that like in, in the States, firing union organizers is a fairly big problem. Is that something that happens here? And if so, how often? I can't offhand remember any statistics with that, but I can link to an article that I did with, uh, with Barry Eidlin, like I said, where we did talk about that. So maybe we can link to that in the show notes and people can look through. Um, but yeah, but it's fairly easy to, in the US to fire union organizers. It's technically illegal. It's technically illegal here in Canada, but the penalties for it are sort of negligent so that, it, yeah, it's just kind of like a cost of doing business for the employer. But I'm not sure about what the exact policy is in Canada. So link to that article. Okay. I wonder um, if we could maybe talk a little bit about COVID. Um, I know everybody's really sort of <laughs> sick of talking about the pandemic and the recession and everything like that. But what do you think um, 
has been some of the impacts of the pandemic for labor already? And, and do you see any other changes that might be on the horizon in the future? I mean, like we talked about before, I think labor issues have really come to the forefront, which has been good. I think there's been more of a people aware of like occupational health and safety and either putting their foot down or recognizing that there's something deeply wrong going on. So I think that is, I think that is good, but also, man, it, I think it really took a toll on a number of, of workers feeling, you know, overwhelmed and exhausted and just, you know, at their, at their wits end. I think the rent housing issue is really intertwined in this because we know that, you know, workers got the CERB for a little while, which was great. It was better than nothing, but you still have these, um, housing prices just going up and up and wages aren't really keeping up with it. You know, workers are just having their paychecks eaten by rent. And I think that's stressing a lot of people, a lot of workers out and putting them in increasingly stressful and precarious positions. So I think I've seen a lot, you know, of reporting and talk in the mainstream, like it is acknowledged that housing is a huge issue that needs to be, something needs to be done about it. A lot of the main parties don't really seem to have that great, <laughs> that great of a, that great of ideas. No, not really. Exactly. So I, I really would like to see you know more labor groups stepping in and talking about about housing as an issue. I know in I think BC there's a group called Rent Strike Bargain, and their goal is to organize tenants unions. So it's unions of tenants organizing against their landlords. You know, opposing opposing rent increases, things like that. I think rent strike bargain, they were talking about, you know, there should be a collective agreement between the tenants and the landlord. You know, why can't that be a thing? So there are groups definitely working on it, but it depends on the province. Like in Ontario, there's kind of more of a robust housing organizing network. In Vancouver, there's a bit. On the prairies, it's a little bit less, which is unfortunate. So I think that's one of the biggest issues for me that came out during the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I used to live in Toronto and like the threat of rent evictions was such a big problem. Still is, I'm sure. <laughs> so it's good to hear that there's tenants unions starting to organize. I have some ideas for housing, but like I don't think anyone in power would like it <laughs> because they're all landlords. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's an issue. It was really, really interesting at Passage, the online magazine, Davide Mastracci did a whole thing looking at, you know, the politicians who are also landlords. And there's like a list of it online, which I thought was really interesting. And it's like all of them. <laughs> it's people from all parties. Exactly. It's people from all the parties. And so it's like, of course, they don't want to fix housing because it might mean that they make less money. But it's like, you're a public servant. We pay you to take care of us. Yeah, exactly. Going back to Jane McAlevey, which I mentioned before, um, she's written a few books. There's one book called No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power. And she talks about how they were organizing, you know, a group of hospital workers. They were organizing them into a union, but then they realized that the workers were also like facing, you know, eviction from gentrification. And so they're like, okay, well, you know, we're not going to have these workers if they have to move so far away that... They're not going to be part of the workforce anymore. And so what they did is they launched a kind of a subsequent campaign to oppose this like housing development and they won, which is really great. So I think 
things like that would be cool to see. I think maybe it's happening more in the States than here. I'm not sure how much that conversation is happening here. So yeah, that's an example of what's what's possible anyways. Yeah, it really feels like no matter what issue you're talking about in Canada, it ultimately always comes back to the housing crisis. <laughs> uh, what a cool society we live in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. I did a story recently about a real estate investment, uh, real estate investment trust, which is or like buying up properties specifically in Alberta and Saskatchewan, kind of like you know, lower quality properties, doing some basic renovations so that they can like charge higher rents. And they said that the demographic they're specifically looking at is the essential workers, people who have kind of like stable-ish jobs and like a certain level of income that they know like these people need housing. They'll always need housing and that's going to be our demographic. And they specifically state that the reason that they do this in Manitoba and Saskatchewan is because there's no rent control. So that's fun. Yeah. At least Ontario has that. Um, I will I will give this province that. Another big issue that's come out of the pandemic is, you know, people getting sick and long COVID and the things that we don't even know about the impacts of COVID on the body that we might not know about for for years and what that implications that has on like for the workforce, for, you know, people who are disabled in the workforce, for um, supports for disabled folks. Yeah, that's going to be like a huge question. The situation for people who are disabled is incredibly dire right now. And there's a few groups that are trying to organize and and raise attention um, about this. There's a group uh, called Invisible Institutions. And well, it's a podcast. It's on the Harbinger Media Network. And they are drawing attention to the issue of sheltered workshops and basically work that people who are disabled do that is, you know, below minimum wage. Um, and this is acceptable because, you know, oh, they're disabled, they're lucky to have jobs. So they'll take what they can get. And yeah, the the, the working conditions are just completely, completely unacceptable. Yeah, we had, um, we had Megan Linton on the podcast to talk about that briefly. And I can't believe poppies of all things are made with sheltered workshops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Definitely people should listen to that podcast. It's great. Um, so this year was also a pretty active year for strikes. I'm wondering if you can give us some of the highlights of um, the strikes that happened this year, or some of them, some of the ones that interested you. Yeah, totally. So in Canada, um, there's, of course, the big CP rail strike, which I think is really interesting because that is where you see a lot of the conservative movement really come out against and they just really show where their values are even though they claim to be like oh all about the hardworking workers and these you know railway workers have horrible awful conditions serious accidents can happen and have happened because they're running longer trains longer hours with fewer workers and it can be incredibly unsafe if you don't have enough sleep or there's like bad weather conditions things like that so so that was interesting, the CP rail strike, um, the academic strikes, like I mentioned before. Um, another thing has been the Unite Here Local 40 lockout in the in BC, in the hotel Hilton Metrotown, I believe it is. So they've been locked out for over a year. And these are hotel workers, and they're fighting for um, extended recall rights, basically. So they got laid off during the 
pandemic because the whole industry, hotel industry was kind of hit there. And there's like a certain window where they could be recalled. But since it was the, the pandemic, the recall process was kind of longer than it, it might typically be. And so what they ended up doing is like, I believe, hiring new workers, which means that they can kind of hire them in. And a lot of workers like lose their seniority and lose their kind of status that they had there. And it kind of kind of bust the union in a way. So they've been, yeah, locked out for a year now. And this is largely women of color. So that has been an ongoing issue. We wrote an article about that as well. So I can link to that. Actually, our our labor intern last year, Emma Arkell, she wrote it. So I hope I got all the details right on that. Maybe she'll uh, she'll have to correct me if I didn't, but there's the, there'll be the article. Um, Quebec daycare workers kind of had a big ongoing um, strike. They were doing some rotating strikes for a bit, and then they kind of did an all-out general strike, and they got some pretty big wins, which was cool. And then right now, there's a ongoing transit strike in BC in like the Sea to Sky region. So I believe that's kind of like the kind of covers a number of uh, different municipalities. And I believe they're basically calling for, you know, wage parity with what transit workers in other regions are getting. And that's been going for over, over 10 weeks. And it's been really, yeah, that's been a really tough one. So yeah, that's kind of some stuff that's happened in the last, last 12 months. Wow, it's a lot going on. I'm wondering, um, you had mentioned that um, the Quebec daycare workers had started with um, sort of a rotating strike and then moved to a full one. Um, can you maybe tell us, explain a little bit about what the difference between the two things is? What, what does a rotating strike look like? Yeah, totally. So Quebec's labor system is a little bit different than uh, other provinces in the rest of Canada in that workers will vote on, they'll have 10 strike days. They'll say, we have 10 strike days in the bank and we will take them when we want to, basically. <laughs> and so they can choose They can choose the kind of strategic times when they want to take them. So they could take one day at a time, just all go on strike for one day, or they could do strike for a weekend or three days. And then if they want more, they'll kind of vote and they'll kind of like maybe add more days to the bank, or they can vote on an like unlimited general strike. And that's generally what we understand as like, a traditional strike where all the workers are out in the picket line, things like that. So it sort of puts pressure on the employer and kind of ramps up the tension as like kind of, yeah, trying to increase the increase the leverage without a full-on full on strike. And there's a number of, like outside of Quebec, there's a number of different tactics that unions will use and workers will use. Um, job action that isn't a full-on strike that will still like try to put leverage um, on the employer. So there's really like a spectrum of job action that can happen before like a full-on strike. Yeah. is I One of them that I had heard of before is the like work to rule strike. Can you maybe explain what, what that is or maybe some other variations as well? Yeah. So work to rule strike means that you are, you're like following the exact rules as they're written down in the workplace and you're not deviating from that whatsoever. So from what I understand, You'll have like a general like policy, you know, workplace policy, and and it'll be like followed more or less. Uh, it'll, it'll be like generally followed, maybe, but not like exactly to the letter of the of the law. And so, what the workers will do is say like, we're not doing anything more than what's outlined here in this policy. So if the if if someone asks you to do something that's not explicitly written down in the collective agreement or explicitly written down in like your job description you can refuse to do it. Like if they say, you know, oh, can you go like clean that window 
or whatever. And you go like, well, that's actually not my job. So I'm not going to clean that window. Little things like that, that can still kind of disrupt things and make things a little bit more difficult for the, for the employer. That's my understanding of it. Yeah, it's super interesting how like, I feel like people have an image in their head, or at least I did of um, strikes as being either this very, like this all or nothing thing. Um, But it's it's interesting to hear that there's such a a range of tactics to sort of ramp up the pressure. Uh, Very cool. Yeah. And this is kind of another strategy that is used by, you know, labor organizers who following again, kind of Jane McAlevey's it's not her model. It's like a model that she promotes that has been like around for a long time, like a hundred years, basically. You use things like structure tests to build up militancy in the union and to basically test where the workforce, where, where your workers are at in the union, how engaged they are. So for example, you might ask workers all to sign a petition, right? Demanding something. And that sounds really basic, but what it does is it gives you an idea like, how many workers are comfortable putting their name on something? How many workers are opposed to doing something like this? It kind of gives you a lay of the land and then you can kind of like ramp up from there. I know in the in the States, a kind of a big movement that happened a few years ago were the big teacher strikes, which were called Red for Ed, where all the teachers would wear red t-shirts. And that was kind of one thing that they they did is they all got the workers to wear red t-shirts and that was part of a structure test how many workers can we can we get to wear red t-shirts on the same day and by doing different things like this you test how successful your strike will be because if you can't get the goal is to get 100% of workers to vote in favor of the strike and to be out on the picket line because you don't want people scabbing or you don't want people feeling like not invested or whatever. It's to get everybody on the same page. And that requires kind of this like leveling up process. That's another way that those tactics can be used to build up to a larger strike. Yeah, that's interesting. That makes me think about the strike that I was a part of because um, <laughs> we did have a very big problem where the picketers were mostly political science students, other social sciences, and then medieval studies, for whatever reason, was also very into labor organizing. But like the like math and science and engineering teaching assistants really weren't engaged in the strike at all. And it posed a really big problem for the efficacy of the strike. So maybe we should have done more of those, you know, structure tests. <laughs> yeah. And that's one thing that is taught in that Organizing for Power course which I've I've linked to right now in the in the newsletter. I think there's a new course coming up May 10th and it runs until June 14th and I've taken this course and it's really great because you're actually meeting workers like around the world online who are who are doing this and learning these tactics and um and it's really cool and it's completely free, which is really awesome. I know for example the Amalgamated Transit Union in Edmonton, I believe. I don't know if they took the course, but they definitely were using those tactics where they presented a big petition to, I think it was to the mayor, which was really great. I wanted to talk a little bit about climate change. I don't really know that I have like um, a good question to pose, but in my head, it seems as though there's sort of a challenge for, at least for some sort of labor groups in terms of how they address climate change, because there is like a job risk um, in terms of transitioning. 
So I'm just wondering, like, is that impression totally false? Like, where where are unions at on climate change? Like, all the major unions, like, will agree that it's an issue and that something should be done about it. And a lot of them have various initiatives or, you know, things that they're, they're trying to do. I know Unifor, for example, they're the largest private sector union. They had, like, a just transition conference, I think, like, last year. So they get all the union members, activists together to, like, talk about these issues yeah, it is a it is a quite a big issue because like for example, like transit organizing and transit is something that I've been paying attention to quite a bit. My partner also wrote a book on it. I really think that expanding transit, intercity transit, I'm on the prairies. There's no way to get around except for a car or a plane. Um, <laughs> and that's like and that's that's a huge issue. The fact that we don't have Greyhound, we don't have any sort of real connected intercity transit network means that we're reliant on on the airline industry and you know if if you for example create a big massive you know national intercity transit network which would be great um you're going to get protests from the airline industry for example because you're kind of creating a massive competition with them right same with like expanding a train network or things like that like industries are very powerful that way and they will like fight these kinds of initiatives. So how do you deal with something like that? How do you deal with the airline industry when we know that we need to reduce our reliance on, on air travel? One issue that has been really interesting is, of course, on the prairies, the oil and gas industry, the issue of oil and gas workers, the conservative lobby, the industry, they love to trot out oil and gas workers as like you know, we must protect these jobs, these good paying jobs. And they're often unionized jobs too. A lot of them are. Yeah. And so the really interesting thing that happened in Regina a few years ago was the co-op refinery strike, which I covered quite a bit. And you had the co-op basically trying to take away these workers' pensions and instigate a bunch of concessions, more or less. And it was a really interesting example of like the oil industry basically screwing over workers. And it's like, isn't this like the the greatest thing that you guys have been saying that oil and gas jobs are like the best, blah, blah. Yeah, it's like the third rail you would think they don't touch. But <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But it was it highlighted that contradiction. And then also the conservative uh, leaders, they weren't at the picket line. They didn't even they didn't touch it. They didn't talk to any of the workers. And the thing is, you have like 800 refinery workers, they notice. <laughs> they notice who's not showing up. They notice that, oh, Scott Moe says he's like here for oil workers, but where is he on this? He's not here for us. And we're out here in the cold in like minus 30. We're not being supported. One really interesting thing that my colleague at rankandfile.ca did, uh, Doug Nesbitt, he's the editor there. He's also a labor historian, is he worked on a history of oil and gas worker organizing and basically highlighted that the reason oil and gas jobs are so good is because there's been union organizing to make them that good. Um, it's not just like a benevolent gift from the oil industry. It's because workers have fought to make those good jobs. Um, and you've really seen that erased. And so I think that's a big struggle to, yeah, to highlight like industry will trot out workers concerns all the time. 
But that's where this like increased class consciousness and increased knowledge about the labor movement can hopefully come in because you can really see the contradictions there. And highlighting those contradictions, I think, is one important step to like cutting through that bullshit and um, fighting for a just transition that actually benefits workers, not just the corporations. I will just note that in the newsletter, which you can subscribe to at pressprogress.ca slash shiftwork. There is a list of every ongoing strike and lockout in Canada right now. It comes to your inbox every Friday. So if you want to keep an eye out on, you know, what's what, what's happening on the picket lines, um, that's the only place that this list exists. It, it doesn't exist anywhere else. And that's why I decided to cr- create it because I was like, why doesn't this exist? <laughs> so if you want to stay up to date on what strikes and lockouts are happening, that's where you can find it. That's awesome. And I think maybe our call to action for this episode could be check out that list and don't cross a picket line. <laughs> I get the shift work newsletter in my inbox. So thank you for the work you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no problem. Well, thank you for subscribing and for the ability to uh, talk about it. It's still a pretty new project for me. I just started it in September. So I really appreciate the opportunity to um, get the word out. Yeah. And like your your work on this is kind of and actually I've fallen in love with newsletters in general recently. I don't know why <laughs> I never subscribed before, but it's kind of inspired me. I think that we might be starting one for pullback pretty soon. That's just like a bunch of action items that people can do every week. But that's a work in progress. No one get too excited yet. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, great. Well, that was a lot. Thank you, Emily, for all of your knowledge. I learned a whole bunch about labor in Canada, which is great because most of the knowledge I have about labor in general comes from the United States. So (laughs) it's nice to have like that local sort of look at it. And it's, it's nice to see how things are similar and how things are different and how any of our listeners who might be from around the world can kind of realize that your local labor organization is going to be different than maybe what the biggest news stories are, like the Amazon union down in the United States. So I really encourage people to take a look at your local organization for labor and support them more. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us, Emily. Yeah, no problem. And in the newsletter, there's also a list of um, kind of resources and webinars and uh, meetings and activities. So yeah, if people are interested in getting plugged in themselves, that's a kind of good resource for them as well. Is there anywhere where people can find you? Like, are you a big uh, Twitter head or you big on Instagram? Unfortunately, I am on Twitter. So uh... (laughs) I feel like all of our guests always say that Twitter is, I mean, maybe if Elon Musk buys it, it'll get better, right? No. (laughs) So you can just find me at... uh, Emily underscore Leadham underscore. And yeah, we can just include that in the notes as well. But that's where you can find me. Amazing. And you can find us on Twitter as well at Pullback Podcast. And I've actually started a new thing that I haven't plugged at all on the show. But if people want to leave us a voice message, there's a link in the show notes on your listening, like where you're listening right now, where you can click it and leave us a voicemail. And uh, (laughs) I I don't know why I did that. I just think that it might be fun. So if anyone has anything they want to say to us, do it, I guess. (laughs) Even if you're just making a funny noise. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, and you can find all of our amazing sister podcasts at harbingermedianetwork.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll catch you on the next one.